Hey everyone, welcome to the Tuesday Night Church Bible Study, and I'm so glad that you've decided to take the time to join us, whether you're watching uh, live on Tuesday night or watching, to, watching a video recording during the week, or even tuning in to our uh, Calvary Monterey podcast, or maybe even listening years later uh, online in an audio archive. Thanks so much for being with us. And, uh, you know, right now we're in the middle of our shelter in place in the Monterey County because of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic that has been unleashed upon the world. Uh, they're telling us, of course, that we're entering into one of the more difficult seasons, uh, at least in the United States of America, and that we should anticipate a rapid increase in the number of uh, infections throughout the nation and then also, unfortunately, deaths uh, throughout the nation uh, as well. And so as we watch those numbers climb, our hearts can become uh, heavy and discouraged. And of course, we're trying to take all the proper measures that we can, uh, sheltering in place one, being one of them, washing our hands frequently and in a safe kind of way, covering our mouths when we're out in public, different things like that. But what can we do for our hearts? What can we do for our souls in a time like this. And that's part of the reason why this last Sunday at Calvary, uh, I issued to the church the Calvary Monterey Shelter in Place Challenge, or more simply put, the Calvary Challenge. And if you weren't with us this last Sunday, I'll reissue the challenge for you uh, here on Tuesday night. And the, the reason for this challenge uh, is partly so that we together as a church can have a sense of a refreshment as we uh, consider the times that we're in and that we could prioritize pursuing the Lord. But, an, but another reason for it is because I know that as we process these difficult times, there are certain things that we can do that are like instruments in the hand of our good and gracious Father uh, who, who, because of those instruments in his hands, will do great things in our lives and will encourage us and strengthen us as we go through uh, the difficult times. So here are the rules of the challenge afresh for you. Every day until the shelter in place order ends, number one, start every day with the Bible and prayer. Start every day with the Bible and prayer. I think that if you can set your mind upon the Lord at the very beginning of the day, it will become emblematic of the entire day. It will be easier for you when your heart is overwhelmed later in the day if at the beginning of the day you brought your heart to God in the first place. Number two, uh, 40 minutes of exercise every single day. 40 minutes of exercise every single day. This might mean a rigorous walk for you. This might mean a long bike ride. This might mean uh, that you do stairs in your uh, house and just go up and down, up and down. It might mean that you do some body weight exercises or a video on your TV screen. But 40 minutes of exercise, get the heart pumping, begin sweating, get the endorphins flowing because this will help us actually mentally and emotionally as we go through these difficult days. There is a connection between the health of your body and the health of your spirit and soul. And then number three, read 10 pages of a spiritually edifying book 
every day. 10 pages of a spiritually edifying book every single day. You know, choose something healthy, something good. I'm reading a systematic theology right now by Wayne Grudem, and it's just been so encouraging to just look at doctrine and teaching and scripture. I spent the morning reading about the sovereignty of God, and it was just such an edifying time uh, for me getting into those 10 pages uplifting my soul. But read 10 pages of a spiritually edifying book. And rule number four is to check the news a maximum of twice daily. You know, the news is moving so quickly these days that it's tempting to feel that it's almost our responsibility to check in every 15 minutes or so to see what new thing has transpired. But I guarantee you, uh, you can check in in the morning, you can check in again in the evening, and you won't miss anything. It'll all be there waiting for you in that moment. And I think this is good to help us stay informed on the one hand, but not to do things that lead to us being overwhelmed on the other hand. And then number five, give something genuine daily. Uh, whether it's money or a compliment or a gift or a gift card or a scripture or a phone call, give something genuine to someone else every single day day. Uh, yesterday was the first day of the challenge uh, for me, uh, being a Monday was the day that we started. And so my first thing that I did uh, was I bought one stock of Cinemark for my daughter, Violet. And I just told her it's worth $10 today. You could either have 10 bucks today or you could watch it grow. I thought I'd give her a little financial lesson there. So uh, that was my gift that I gave to her. I'm weird, but you could give a gift uh, or something every single day. And I think that if you do those things, it'll help. Uh, as you give, take your eyes off yourself. As you uh, limit your exposure to the news, it will help you to uh, realize that your world and what God is doing in your life, he's helping you, he's sustaining you, and it'll keep you kind of in balance uh, rather than living someone else's life. I think reading every day from a spiritually edifying book will fortify you internally. I think that exercise will help you process through life. Even just yesterday, I was meeting with Pastor Andrew online, of course, and uh, he shared with me that he started the challenge and he went on a bike ride that he probably wouldn't have gone on uh, had we not had the challenge in place. And on the bike ride, he came up with some brilliant ideas. There were just things that had to get worked out as he just got on the pavement and exercised his body. And then I think by starting every day with the Bible and prayer, you'll see the reality of the Lord being on the throne of your life more than ever. So I'd encourage you uh, to get into the challenge. And if you want to hear more about it, Pastor Riley and myself had a 30 or so minute conversation that we recorded over Zoom a few days ago. It's on the Calvary Monterey podcast and also at calvary.com slash challenge. You could go listen to that uh, to get it fleshed out a little bit more uh, for you uh, if you so uh, desire. All right, today what I want to do is, uh, this is a very busy week for us uh, as a church. You know, obviously we're not able to gather physically for Good Friday services and for Easter services as we would desire and are accustomed to doing. Uh, so this is a little bit of a sad week in that it's Holy Week, yet we cannot gather in our customary ways. 
Uh, but it's also a full week in that we'll be recording Good Friday services and, and having those available on Friday. And then, of course, the Easter service that we'll have available on Easter Sunday. And then all of the behind-the-scenes work that's required to study, prepare, all of that for those. And in thinking of that, I thought that it might be nice for us in the midst of Good Friday service and Easter Sunday, I thought it might be nice for us to take a trip away from the book of Genesis tonight and into Psalm 23, one of the most beautiful passages in all of God's word, so that we could allow his scripture to bring comfort and encouragement to our souls. So wherever you're at uh, tonight or today, would you turn to Psalm 23? And I'm going to start by reading the whole psalm to you uh, before we look at the individual portions of the psalm together. It says in Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray for our time in the word. Lord, we pray and ask that you would strengthen us in your word. And Lord, far from thinking of this psalm as a, a trite kind of saying, bringing uh, a temporary comfort to the soul, we believe that there is truth found inside of this psalm that sets us upon the rock. And so, Lord, thank you. And we thank you for being our good shepherd. Would you speak to us as we interact today with your word? In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Okay, David who is called in scripture, the man after the Lord's own heart, had learned as a young man about shepherding uh, through the peaks and valleys of his own life. He knew that God had been his good shepherd. And at some point in his life, it doesn't say when, David sat down and he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, the shepherd's psalm. And it, of course, is one of the most famous uh, songs in human history. A Jew and Gentile, Hebrew and Christian have celebrated the warmth and the tenderness of the words that we just read together. Even instinctively, when we read from Psalm 23, we know that we are standing on holy ground. It's just intuitive to us. This is God's word. Now the lyrics of the song provide us with two main characters, and that's where we're going to start today. The first character is the shepherd, who is the Lord, uh, David's God, the, the one who cared for David's soul. Uh, David had realized God's tender care towards him, comparing it to the way a shepherd cares for his sheep. Now David after all, had cared for his own father's sheep when he was a young man. 
Uh, he had fed his father's sheep when they were hungry. He defended his father's sheep when there were predators. And he led his father's sheep to green pastures. So he knew all about what it took to be a shepherd. Now you might remember that when the lion attacked David's sheep or the bear attacked David's sheep, David sprung up and the Spirit of God filled him with ability and he struck both of them down, defending his father's flock. He knew what it was like to give his life sacrificially for his father's sheep. They'd become his own sheep in a sense. And now David realized that God had done the same for him. So the first character is the shepherd Lord. The second character, of course, is David. David, he's the sheep in this psalm. Now, we could understand how David could come to or would have come to see human beings like sheep or the people of Israel as a collection like a flock of sheep. You know, he'd cared for flocks of sheep long enough to see that people are similar to sheep. Uh, he'd seen the Sauls and the Absaloms and the Joabs uh, of his life replicating his father's misbehaving sheep. Uh, once he became king, David would have seen all of Israel like a massive flock of God, people in need of leadership who would even trend towards self-destruction were it not for the shepherding hand of David himself over the nation. But eventually something happened in David's life where he realized that he also was a sheep in the eyes of his father God. It wasn't just the multitudes. It wasn't just the, those who misbehaved. But in his own life, he knew that he also needed the Lord's leadership and direction and guidance and provision in life. Now, you could say that David, during the time that he lived, was the greatest man walking on the face of the earth. I mean, just imagine it. God had told David that through him, through his offspring, one would come who would sit on his throne forever. In other words, the promise of the Messiah that had been given to Eve and then through Noah and Seth and through Abraham, especially and Isaac and Jacob and on to the tribe of Judah, that messianic promise had been whittled down to David's household. In other words, in his DNA, in his body, would come the future Messiah. So in a sense, he was the greatest man walking on the face of the earth. But in spite of his greatness, David understood that he was like a sheep who needed to be led by his father. No matter how accomplished we are, no matter how self-sufficient we become, like David, we should know that we need our Father in heaven to be our shepherd. So the second character is David the sheep. Okay, the song has a promise attached to it. It's found in verse 1. We already read it together. The promise is very simple. It's a lack of want. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now this is a radical promise if you really think about it. You know, there are so many messages that are hyped in our modern era. And one message that I think is often overhyped is the message that 
The freedom to do whatever you want to do is the ultimate good. You know, as long as you can do whatever you want to do, then you must be a happy person. And to this cultural value, though, David described a life under the care of his shepherd. David was saying, when I'm led by God, not when I do whatever I want, but when I'm led by God, then I am totally free. I have no needs when I'm in that state. I have no wants when I'm in that state. In other words, he was a satisfied, satiated man when his Father in heaven was leading his life. He saw himself as a contented sheep in need of absolutely nothing. It is this contentedness that we should come to the song craving, that, that we could also say the same thing, I shall not want. You know, to live a life free of the trappings of discontent, free to refuse the temptations of the flesh's desires. That's a life that we should long for. That's a life that is actually free, that has no wants. So we should wish for David's contentment. He'd followed his own psalmic advice and had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And now he's living to sing the tale of God's goodness in this psalm. Okay, so that's, those are the characters and that's the promise of the song. But how does our shepherd Lord produce such a massive and glorious level of contentment in his sheep? How does he bring us to the marvelous place of rest. How are we brought by him to a lack of want? All right, well, let's spend the remainder of our time uh, in Psalm 23 observing the ways. Number one, he does this. He, he brings us to this place of contentment by number one, making you lie down. Number one, making you lie down. Look at what it says in Psalm 23, verse two, the first half of it. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Okay, so how does a shepherd make his sheep lie down? You know, what, is, what, is, what does the shepherd do to bring his sheep to a place where they begin to rest? Maybe some of you even feel a little bit this way during this shelter-in-place order. Your life was going so fast, spinning out of control, and then this order came into existence and boom, so many things came to a stop. I know that's not the experience of so many of you. I know some of you have multiple young children at home whose lives are filled with Zoom meetings with their elementary school teachers and you're trying to get the technology to work and both parents are trying to work from home or a single parent trying to hold it all together. But for some of you, life has come to a a, an abrupt standstill. And in that moment, it feels almost like our good shepherd is trying to get us to stop and to lie down. A Philip Keller who wrote a book called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23, he was a pastor who had also been a shepherd at various points in his life. And he said this, the strange thing about sheep is that because of their very makeup, it is almost impossible for them to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. He said, first, they have to be free of a fear of predators. Second, they have to be free 
from friction with other sheep. That one always cracks me up. I just imagine sheep with it, having a beef with another sheep, you know, in the flock. Number three, they have to be free from the torment of pests. And number four, they have to be free from a hunger for food. Okay, one glance at this list makes it apparent that the good shepherd does not make his sheep lie down through some poetic or flimsy means. I think that's sometimes how we read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And we just sort of imagine the shepherd there with his harp, playing it for us, causing us to fall asleep peacefully there on the grass. No, this psalm is not mere sentiment. It's not a greeting card type of mentality thrown into Scripture. No, this portrays the shepherd as working hard to bring his sheep to a place of rest. God laboring to bring us to a place of rest and contentedness. And I want you to picture Jesus that way. Your great high priest working behind the scenes, unbeknownst to you and to the rest of the flock, to bring us into a place of rest. He's laboring to quiet our fears and insecurities, whispering into our ears about our safety in him, striving to bring us into relational peace with other embattered uh, and broken humans with whom we must interact, teaching us how to navigate the minefield of human relationships. He's creating remedies for the pests and annoyances that are certain to follow us in life. And he's developing ways for his sheep to endure their troubles. And he strives to feed his people satisfying us with his word so that we can come to a place of rest. He works diligently, tirelessly, often in ways that we cannot see and we cannot comprehend to bring us to a place of rest. Do you believe this? Do you believe that even in the midst of all of this chaos, our sovereign Lord is working hard to bring us to that place of rest? It says in Hebrews 4 verse 1, that the promise of entering his rest still stands. It says in Hebrews 4, verse 9, that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You see, your good shepherd desires to bring you, his beloved sheep, into a place of rest and grace before him. He wants you to rest in his arms of love and quiet and calm. Every abuse, every entanglement, every sin that you've ever been caught up in is no problem for his shepherd's heart. He can bring you through it all to a place of calm before him. Even when there's chaos, you can lie down in peace before your father. He loves you and cares for you. The same Lord who told his disciples to work hard and cast their nets on the other side of the boat also called them to come and eat breakfast and to cease their toil to enjoy him. This is his desire to bring us to a place of rest. So the first thing that we saw together is that Jesus, he brings us to a place of rest by making us lie down. But number two he also brings us to a place of contentedness by, number two, satisfying your thirst. Satisfying your thirst. Look at Psalm 23, verse 2. At the second half of verse 2, it says, He leads me 
beside still waters. Okay, uh, modern shepherds have all kinds of equipment that they can use to deliver water to their flocks. You know, if you go up to the Badger Hills or the Fordord Hills from time to time on a hike or a run or a mountain biking adventure, sometimes you'll see the herds of goats that are fenced in at various spots throughout the land uh, in order to eat all the vegetation. And you'll notice that those shepherds uh, or those overseeing these flocks, they have big tanks of water that they can fill up and deliver uh, to their flocks. But ancient shepherds had no such machinery at their disposal. The ancient shepherd had to find sources of water in the natural world to provide for their sheep. And for sheep to drink from water, certain conditions have to be, to be met. First of all, the water cannot be rapidly flowing because uh, sheep are startled and disturbed by bubbling and flowing waters. So the waters need to be still. But secondly, because the sheep do refer still waters, uh, the shepherd has to make sure to find water that is not so still that it's become stagnant and parasitic. Uh, sheep are too willing to drink that kind of water because it doesn't frighten them. But even though it doesn't frighten them, it could cause them to get sick and ultimately kill them. So the shepherd has to work hard to bring them to still waters that are healthy and good for them. One way that a shepherd in ancient times would do this is by finding a flowing stream that by itself would scare the sheep, but then going out ahead of time and taking rock after rock, boulder after boulder, stone after stone into the stream and creating a little eddy, a little place off to the side where the water could flow into and become still for his sheep, thereby causing the fresh water to be still for his flock. The stones would help slow the water and the sheep would drink this healthy water rather than sickly water. This is a beautiful picture. It helps us see that our good shepherd is working hard to bring us to healthy sources of water. Things which actually and truly satisfy the thirst within our souls. He is trying to lead us to still waters. A great example of this comes in the life of Jesus. John tells us in John chapter 4 that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had an appointment there in Samaria that no one knew about with a woman. She didn't even know about this appointment. A Samaritan woman at a well. And when Jesus arrived there at that well, he dismissed his disciples and told them to go acquire some lunch. And in the heat of the noonday sun, Jesus remained alone at the town's well, the well of Jacob, when this singular woman arrived. As she worked to draw water, Jesus asked her for a drink, and she was shocked that Jesus spoke to him. She expected to be alone during the heat of the noonday sun, and Jesus, who was a Jewish man, was not supposed to speak with her, a Samaritan woman. She said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus replied to her and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, 
you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, they went back and forth for a little bit. Uh, and then Jesus said to her, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now she didn't understand what Jesus meant by this water bubbling up from within by which she would never be thirsty. So she said to Jesus, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She thought he was talking about physical thirst and physical water. So Jesus did something unexpected. He said to her, go and call your husband and come here. She replied, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right when you say you have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the man you are with today is not your husband. All of this is from John chapter 4. Now when Jesus said this to the woman, he was not trying to embarrass her. He was not trying to shame her when he revealed her situation. He was not demeaning her. Nor was he trying to just demonstrate miraculous knowledge, like, hey, look, here's something cool that I know. You've been married five times and you're living with a sixth man that you're not married to. No, here's what Jesus was doing. Like an expert surgeon diagnosing his patient and attempting to cut out the cancer within, Jesus was attempting to show this woman the thirst that she had within. She had no idea what he meant when he said, you're thirsting and I could satisfy your thirst. So he wanted to show her what her thirst looked like. She was hungry and thirsty for something and she'd tried time and time again to fulfill that thirst with various men that she'd brought into her life. She was thirsty, but it turned to the wrong places to quench her thirst. This is the tendency of God's sheep so often. We so often turn to the wrong sources to quench our thirst. God said in Jeremiah 2 verse 13, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, which is the first evil, the fountain of living waters. But the second evil, he said, and have made for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, back then, God's people had turned from the God who could satisfy them to the murky waters of the world, streams which could not satisfy them, could not last, and would ultimately endanger their health. And so for us, we want to be a people that turn afresh, anew to Jesus. He's there. He's waiting. He's wanting to solve the riddle of our thirst, to bring us into refreshment in him. He is the stream that can satisfy. So the second thing was Jesus can bring us to a state of contentedness by satisfying our thirst. And number three, he brings us to a state of contentedness by number three, setting your soul aright. Setting your soul aright. It says in Psalm 23, verse three, he restores my soul. As this song progresses, here we come to this sheep that is distraught. And David saw himself like this, this worried and anxious sheep, one who needed soul 
restoration. It always cracks me up thinking about this stressed out, anxious, overwhelmed sheep, you know, lying there on his therapist's couch getting counsel. <laughs> That's David. He felt that in his own heart, he was one in need of soul restoration. You know, the Lord was his shepherd, absolutely, but he still felt that there were times that his soul would become imbalanced and upset. And the song presents the image of a little sheep who has, through some circumstance, whether real or imagined, bought into this unsettled state. Some of you might find yourself in this condition right now. As we pass through the season that we're passing through, some of you might even be reading the news, looking even at the statistics of this particular sickness, telling yourself on one hand, I'm healthy, I'm okay, I don't have pre-existing conditions, I think even if I got it, I'd be okay. But on the other hand, the logic goes out the window and you've become panicked and distressed. Almost thinking that if you fell ill, you would most certainly die. That's a moment where we need soul restoration. Many believers forget about this. You know, we feel as if we're walking with God, and that must mean that we will never experience a time where we need the restoration of the soul. You know, shouldn't a walk with God mean that our souls are always blessed and on the up? and joyful. But the reality is that there are times that our souls will become out of balance even when we're walking with God. God is ours, we are his, but we still walk through trials. We still experience agitation, frustration, anger, disappointment, hurt, or depression. And in those moments, we ought not doubt our identity as his sheep but simply see these feelings and experiences as evidence that we are merely sheep. In other words, when these things happen to us, we shouldn't say, do I really belong to God? Would someone who belongs to God be feeling this way? We should instead look into the word and say, no, it's because I'm a sheep that of course I will at times feel this way. I am feeble and I need my shepherd. You see, God has not made us into superhumans who cannot fall into times of bewilderment or stress. Our shepherd labors to set our souls aright. He restores our soul, David said. David was familiar with this truth and that he often went through great tumult in his walk with God. You know, at one point, David told his best friend in the world, Jonathan, there's but a step between me and death. He was in a time of peril. He thought that Saul was going to kill him. And so he said, there is one step removing me from certain death. He, you know, he often struggled through times like that, times of betrayal, times of rejection. His soul became betwixt within him. And as he labored through life, he felt that the Lord was the one who could restore our souls. I want you to think of Jesus this way, as the great restorer of our souls. He longs to set your soul aright. You know, think about his grace with Peter as an example of this. You know, Peter loudly and passionately declared that he'd never deny Jesus. And when he did, 
embarrassingly around a fire to a few lowly servants, he went out afterwards and wept profusely. He'd failed the Lord. That's a miserable experience for any believer. If you're still young enough, perhaps you don't have that in your history, but anyone who's walked with the Lord for a time, you know what it's like to have failed the Lord. It's a, it's a miserable experience. But after Jesus rose from the dead, he set his targets upon Peter. And one day after fishing, Jesus prepared another fire on the shores of Galilee. And just as Peter had denied Jesus three times, three times Jesus asked Peter at that fire, do you love me? It was Jesus' way of restoring Peter. And he told Peter to feed and tend the flock of God. He wanted Peter to know your life is still useful. And in one sense, more useful now that I've restored you, now that you've been, now that you've been broken. He worked hard to set Peter's soul aright. And I think if we avail ourselves to Jesus' leadership, he'll work hard to set our souls aright as well. But let's move on to a fourth way that Jesus brings contentedness into our lives. Number four, by forging new right paths for you. By forging new right paths for you. Look at the second half of verse 23. It says, excuse me, of verse 3 of chapter 23. It says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Okay, the shepherd here also leads the sheep into new and right paths. Now, sheep are like humans in that they will tread the same paths over and over and over again until they turn into ruts. Have you ever felt your life getting into a rut that you could not get out of? Sheep are just like us in that regard. Philip Keller, who I talked about earlier, the shepherd who was also a pastor, said this, sheep are notorious creatures of habit. If left to themselves, they will follow the same trails until they become ruts, graze the same hills until they turn to desert waste, pollute their own ground until it is corrupt with disease and parasites. Many of the world's finest sheep ranges have been ruined beyond repair by overgrazing, poor management, and indifferent or ignorant sheep owners. In other words, lacking wisdom and insight, a sheep will not dare to venture into uncharted yet healthy areas for their lives. They're prone to wander, absolutely, but not towards the healthy paths of righteousness that the Lord has in store. Now, our shepherd, our Lord, he has new and right paths for us to walk in, that he's designed for us. But you know, whenever the Lord has a new right path for us, it frightens us. It's change. And so it's difficult for us to enter into. As an example of this, think about the original disciples. Jesus walked on the shores of Galilee and said to four of them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What was that? It was a new path. It was a right path, but nonetheless a scary path because they'd never gone that way before. 
But this was Jesus' way of inviting his men into a new, good, perfect, right path for their lives. But fright would have overwhelmed their hearts. Who was this man? Who was this rabbi that was asking them to go on this journey with him and take this new path? But the paths that the Lord has for us are good and right. They might be intimidating at first, but when we obey and submit and follow to our shepherd, soon we'll discover how good and how right these paths actually are. You know, when a new believer is taught about financial generosity, for example, it comes across as a shocking and frightening new path. Why would I want to make myself less secure by giving away my money? Uh, the, but the Christian who enters into this path soon discovers how good and how right it truly is. When we're called into a new and right path like this one, we're often hesitant but our Lord will often call us beyond our comforts for our great good. He wants to get us out of our comfort zone because if we stay where we are, the ground beneath us will begin to pollute itself. We must move out and move on with our Lord. Uh, there's a great book called Gay Girl, Good God by uh, a, a great Christian rap artist named Jackie Hill Perry, she's many other things as well, great theologian, speaker, uh, you know, a lot of wonderful things, but is a musician as well. And she wrote the story of her own testimony, her own personal encounter with Jesus, how she became a Christian. Uh, she became uh, convinced that God was the all-beautiful one that she wanted to follow. It just, when you read her story, it's just powerful. He just met her while she was alone in her room and she knew, I want to follow Jesus. I've got to submit my life to this God. Now, she had been living and practicing a lesbian lifestyle for many years at that point. But there, under the conviction of God, she knew that she could no longer pursue those desires, but wanted to pursue this God. And even though her same-sex attraction did not immediately or magically dissipate, like some Christians think automatically happens, uh, as a new believer, she knew that God had a new and right path for her. It was uncomfortable. It wasn't natural to her, at least at first. But over time, she began to realize as she followed this foreign path for her life, this victory over her own flesh. And eventually she, at least for her story, found herself in love with a wonderful and godly man whom she eventually married and started a family with. But her description of those early days, and even in some sense her current days, is a, is a beautiful detail of a new and right path that her shepherd called her to walk on. And she and all others who have come out into the paths Christ has for them rejoice. And so Jesus has new right paths for us to walk in. But another way that Jesus brings us to a place of contentedness is number five, by leading you through the valleys. Number five, by leading you through the valleys. It says in verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
Now, this is one of the most famous lines in all of God's word. We're very familiar with it. And David, of course, had experienced many dark valleys in his personal walk with God. I mean, when you go back and read First and Second Samuel, you read of a man who was familiar with suffering. You know, he'd endured Saul's spears and attempts to take David's life. He'd endured wilderness wandering brought on by Saul's incessant hatred. He endured war with Ishbosheth, Saul's remaining son after Saul's death. He'd endured the betrayal of his own son, Absalom. He'd endured the breakup of his own family through incest and rape and abuse and murder. He watched the nation reject him. He felt the pains of death in his own life. But all the while, his shepherd Lord stood by his side, leading and guiding his life. Now, ancient shepherds, they would have to annually take their sheep to greener pastures by driving them through the dangers of the valley. And as they roamed those ancient, ancient countrysides, the sheep, to get to the safe places for nourishment, had to pass through the frightful terrain of the valleys. In those moments, away from the comforts of the range and in the valley, the shepherd's relationship with the sheep shifted. It intensified. No longer could the shepherd watch the flock from far away, tending to individual needs only as needed. But in the valley, the shepherd had to personally engage with the sheep to get them to their desired destination. Imagine, if you will, a long line of sheep waiting for the shepherd's help to get over a boulder or a cliff or a rock that they could not get over by themselves. A shepherd standing there, carrying each sheep, placing them up on higher ground. The shepherd's need to handle the sheep in this close and intimate way is why David's song becomes personal at this point. You know, up to this point in the song, David has been singing about the Lord, saying things about his shepherd, but here he begins to sing to his shepherd. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me not lie down. He leads me. He restores me. That's David talking about the shepherd. But now, when walking through the valley of the shadow of death, David said, you are with me. And this so often is our experience when the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties of life come in, we begin to feel the Lord's presence in a very personal way. God becomes very personal to us in those moments. It's in the despair of life that we begin to feel and know him intimately and personally. You know, in the pains and pressures of life, our theories about God become a reality. We're no longer theorizing about him, but we're practicing who he actually is in the realness of life. It's in the hard and challenging times that we learn who God truly is. We say that God is good, but in the valley, we feel and experience and bask in that goodness. 
Now, the same Jesus who saw his disciples straining at the oars out there from the mountaintop as he looked down at the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night, he also sees us straining at the oars of life. He knows our struggles. He knows our pains as we enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. He wants to stand with us. You know, whenever Paul, the apostle, was at the bottom of his life, whenever he was in the pit, so to speak, those were the moments that Jesus encouraged his heart. Just do it. Scan the book of Acts. Scan the writings of Paul. There are a handful of times where you'll see red ink if you have a red letter edition Bible. Those are the words of Jesus directly to his heart. And read the surrounding context. It was in the most difficult and painful times of Paul's life that he received direct comfort from the Lord. He said it this way in 2 Timothy 4, verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the mouth of the lion. Even when no one else would stand with Jesus, or excuse me, stand with Paul, the Lord stood with Paul. And our good shepherd, our Lord, he is the one who will rescue us from the lion's mouth as well. I'm thinking as I share this today about so many of you who are walking right now through the valley of the shadow of death. Let Jesus's rod and staff be your comfort. He will protect you. He will defend you. And in this moment, he wants a closeness of fellowship and intimacy with you. He will get you through this time. But let's look at a final thing that Jesus does to bring us as our good shepherd to a place of contentedness. Number six, he brings us to a place of contentedness by number six, bringing you to the life he's prepared for you. Bringing you to the life he's prepared for you. Look at it in verse five of chapter 23. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of of my enemies. Okay, at this point, it feels like we've passed from the world of sheep into the world of humanity when we read this verse. You know, what does a sheep have to do with bountiful tables and overflowing cups, as we'll see in a moment? Why would a sheep celebrate this type of future? It seems like David has shifted his imagery from a sheep to the human world. But before we make that assumption, consider this. Ancient shepherds were nomadic. You know, often they'd have to leave their sheep in the countryside and go away to scout a future location to bring their sheep to during the difficult winter months, during the harsher climates. And as they left their sheep and departed on this expedition, they'd find and search for the perfect place to bring their flock to in the future. And they would usually find, generally find, these mesas or table lands that were protected from the elements during those seasons. 
And once he found that tableland that he wanted to bring his sheep to, the shepherd often would actually bring out minerals and lay them out on the ground, scatter them to enrich the soil so that the grass there would be strong and healthy once the sheep arrived, once he returned and brought them through the valley to the tablelands that he had prepared for them in advance. And all of this preparation... The shepherd scouting, the shepherd scattering minerals, the shepherd journeying and looking for the perfect place to bring his flock to, all of that preparation would go unknown to the flock. The sheep were unconscious of the shepherd's movements. They they had no clue what their shepherd was doing. Where is that guy? What is he up to? Well, what he's up to is preparing a future for his sheep. You see, what they could do was trust the goodness of their shepherd to provide for their future. And our good shepherd also leads our lives today. He goes before us. He finds and prepares tablelands for us. You know, on one hand, you could say that heaven is the ultimate tableland that God is preparing for his people. But you could also say that here on earth, Christ-likeness is another tableland that God wants to bring all of his saints to, all of his sheep to. He wants all of us to become more like Jesus. But there are other things individual to you and individual to me that our Lord wants to do and prepare for us in life. And I wonder what it is. You know, I wonder what it is that the good shepherd is preparing for you. I wonder what table land he has in store for you. You know, some of you during this season, though it's difficult to do so, you're going to have to remind yourself of the truth of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. You're going to have to believe with all of your heart that God is able and will take the evil and difficulty you're passing through and redeem it for his purposes in your life. You're going to have to know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You're going to have to believe that and trust that even if you don't know what that good table land is going to be, trust that your shepherd is working in advance to prepare that for your life. So here's our conclusion, wrapping it all up. The conclusion to all of this is that I can be contented as a sheep with the Lord as my shepherd because I am a privileged person. Let's read it in verse five and six of chapter 23. He says, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay, David ends this psalm on a real beautiful high note. He believes God's goodness and mercy will pursue him all the days of his life. Now, the word follow there uh, is a military word. It's like being chased in the wilderness by a military power. And David was very familiar with that. Saul had chased him in the wilderness. David had pursued his enemies. So he believed that God's goodness and God's mercy would chase him in a similar kind of way. You see, we're a privileged people. 
we have the gospel. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And we have our Father in heaven. And we have the good shepherd who watches over us. Goodness and mercy shall follow us, shall pursue us all the days of our lives. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This holy week, may you be rem reminded that you have a shepherd in Jesus who laid down his life for the flock. God bless you, church. I can't wait to see you in the flesh, but my prayers are with you until that time.